Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, let's... uh... Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, make sure we're ready to study this evening, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much that we can be here this evening. We thank you that your word uh, refreshes us, that your word helps us to focus on reality as it is in the creation you have created, and that as the creator who made everything in the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, you also are in control. You have declared the end from the beginning. And thus, as we study your word, we are able to learn about reality as it is and that we can get our eyes off of self and our eyes off the details of life. And we can put our eyes upon that which has eternal value as we learn to focus on the mission that you have given us as we live in this church age. Father, we pray that as we continue our study tonight in Hebrews 11, and as we go back into the Old Testament again, that we might be uh, encouraged and strengthened by the example of what we read and study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. We're going to get into some really interesting things tonight. And first of all, we have to go back to Hebrews 11 to see where we were last time. Hebrews 11:30 and 31, these two verses introduce the uh, next two uh, examples. We started last week with background to, to uh, Joshua, but here we read that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, if you're familiar with the book of of Joshua, what you will observe when you read those two books, I mean those two verses in Hebrews, is they're in reverse order. That, in one sense, that the spy incident with Rahab happens first, and then in chapter 2, and then the incident with the walls collapsing is in chapter 6. However, the focal point in Joshua, I mean, in Hebrews 11.31, is that Rahab did not perish. And so the focal point here is not on the incident of the spies coming in Joshua 2, but on the fact that when the uh, walls fell, verse 30, that they did not kill her. She was trusting in God to deliver her in the midst of the battle and in the midst of the conquest. So last time we got started in Joshua, just thought I'd give you one, one, one more chance to remember, have a good visual image to remember uh, Joshua. It is about the conquest. And a focus in Hebrews 11 is on by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And the faith, as I've said again and again, so you won't forget it, is that The faith is always in a specific promise of God. It's not in just some sort of abstract principle or some generalization, but that what God is doing, what God is reminding us is that their faith was always focused on specific revelation. And in almost all of these examples, at least from Abraham on, the focus is on the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here we have in... um, Joshua 1, 3 through 5, the promise that God makes to Joshua as he takes over the leadership of the Israelites to lead them into the land and to lead the conquest. God states in Joshua 1, 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread, tread upon, I have given you as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is a tremendous promise to Joshua. And remember, Joshua, 
was one of the two spies that 40 years earlier had refused to be uh, terrified by the giants in the land, by the walled cities, and by the numerous people. And he knew that God could deliver them, and so his faith has only strengthened over the last 40 years. But he has this specific promise to go on that no matter what they face, no matter what armies they face, no matter what fortified cities they, they might face, God is going to provide for them, and God is going to uh, give them the land that he has promised them. Uh, this promise goes back to passages such as Deuteronomy 1, 7, and 8, where in verse 8 God stated to Moses and Moses stated to the people just before they went into the land, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. So that Abrahamic covenant, that Abrahamic promise is the basis for the whole book of Joshua. And in fact, it becomes a foundation for understanding almost everything that happens to Israel during the subsequent centuries. And I think it's the Abrahamic covenant that lays the foundation for the rest of human history since the uh, Abrahamic covenant because that will then be the basis for God uh, restoring the land to Israel in the future, uh, establishing the Messianic kingdom on the land that God promised to Abraham. And so everything goes back to understanding the Abrahamic covenant and its permanence. Now, at the time that Moses dies, he goes up on Mount Nebo, which is located, see if I can get my cursor over here. There we go. Mount Nebo is located here. If you can see the black arrow over here, I'll move it around to catch it so you can catch it. That is located in the, the uh, Transjordan area, east of the Jordan, in what is now the uh, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And actually, it's only about uh, maybe 25, 30, 40 miles from the crossing of the of the Jordan River here. Mount Nebo is where Moses uh, left, went up to the top of Mount Nebo, and where he died. And the Israelites are camped down in this lower area on the plains of Moab, and they will get up, go down to the uh, Jordan, as I uh, said, went over last time, and there God will direct them, direct them to be led by the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the water will not stop flowing until they put their foot down to actually take a step into the river. So that must have called for a tremendous amount of, um, of trust in the Lord to, uh, that he would cause that water to stop because everything in their being would have told them that water's still coming all the way down as their feet were just above the water, the water uh, receded. Now, there is a uh, um, possible explanation that some people go to to explain what, went, what happened here and how this could conceivably have taken place uh, via a natural cause, and that the water stopped some 15 miles uh, above the crossing point here. And in uh, Joshua chapter 3, verse 16, we read, The waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed crossed over opposite Jericho. Now, there's uh, a way in which God can cause something miraculous to happen via a natural cause. This doesn't diminish the miracle any because this happened exactly when uh, the priests were putting their feet into the Jordan. But there have been known instances when the Jordan has been completely stopped for a period of time. The most recent time that occurred was back in the 1920s when there was an earthquake in the area, and it causes mudslides to occur in the area of the Jordan, and the mudslides come down and block the river. And in 1920, there's a, there's a recorded incident when this occurred. Mudslides, mudslides blocked the river. The water completely stopped flowing for a little over 20 hours before it broke that earthen dam. So it's possible, conceivable, that that is one of the ways in which God... Uh, God caused this to happen 
through an intermediate means of a natural cause, but it's still every bit a miracle that it happened at the instant that the priest's feet hit the ground. Now, I'm not saying that's the explanation. God could very easily have just stopped the water with an invisible wall and held it for the time being. Uh, But this is an earthquake-prone area. We're in the rift uh, river valley, this this gorge, this... uh, uh, where the different uh, plates, geological plates come together. And so this is a, an extremely earthquake-prone area, and I think that might even come to play in how God uh, may have used an earthquake in bringing down the walls of uh, Jericho. So the people are then crossing over the Jordan, and they're going to approach Jericho. And here we have Jericho just here, and Jericho is less than 20 miles from the Jordan. So as they cross the Jordan, first thing they're going to do is head head north to make camp at Gilgal. And you can be certain that the uh, Canaanites had their spies out watching the movement of the Israelites as they were coming. They knew all of the stories about how they uh, left Egypt. They've been waiting for them for 40 years because they... Uh, have heard the rumors that their land is going to be taken, and so they are preparing themselves and fortifying themselves in Jericho. Now, the territory around Jericho, at least today, is not very hospitable. Uh, This is a picture taken about a 100 years ago that uh, in black and white, giving you some idea of the the, uh, background to the area and the excavations of the tell on the uh, northern end of Jericho, and that's what it looked like on the uh, 100 years ago. And you can see some of the walls here that are outlined and were were first beginning to be excava- excavated in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. This is a, another view to, uh, today that uh, you can see a little more clearly the Tel El Sultan, which is where the uh, uh, remains are, is located in, in uh, not, that's not it, it's up here. This is the area right here, and I hope there's enough contrast there for you to see that. This is the area of the old city of Jericho. It wasn't very large. The, there were actually two walls. It's up on a little bit of a, of a hill, and the uh, inner part of the city, the upper city, uh, covered about uh, six or seven acres, and then if you had the whole tell itself, it covered about nine acres. And so the uh, at the time that the Israelites were coming, the people who farmed, who were uh, lived outside of the city, would have all come inside of the city. And so it's estimated that there were just uh, several thousand people all within the uh, fortification of Jericho within the walls of the city of Jericho. Now, when we look at these events, I want to start by going back to uh, chapter 2 to pick up the initial reconnaissance that took place uh, with the two spies and Rahab. And as Joshua is crossing, getting ready to cross uh, the Jordan and preparing his assault on the land, he's going to send out two spies to form a reconnaissance to see what is going on and to get him some information. Now, he's not making the mistake that the Jews made back at Kadesh Barnea. He's not sending out the spies to find out if they can do this. He is just getting information to, so that he understands the terrain, understands the people, and un- understands the fortifications uh, that are there. And so they, these two spies come to uh, Jericho, and it is obvious that they're not Canaanites and they're not from Jericho, and they, they're not very good at uh, going into covert operations, and it is very soon that the king of Jericho is made aware that these men have come into the city to spy out the countryside and to see the lay of the land. And so they, they inform him that he is with uh, uh, Rahab, who is called the harlot. And at that time, it was common for uh, someone who perhaps ran some sort of a hostel or inn to provide services other than simply room and board. And so that was uh, her particular role. So these men uh, have come to her and seeking her out, 
And then uh, she recognizes who they are. They, she understands something about God. She understands something about the uh, Israelites and God's mission for them. And so she is going to protect them. And verse 4, we're told of the famous lie that Rahab told. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Now, what's interesting, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to throw out a couple of things for you to think about. What's interesting about this episode is this is taking place in a military or warfare context where the spies are uh, clearly on a mission for the army of God, which is, in this case, the Israelites. And so in a military context, they are involved in a covert operation which necessarily calls for uh, a certain amount of deception to the enemy. And I think it's important for us to put this in the broader context of the angelic conflict and the warfare that God is engaged in with the enemies of his plans and operations, whether those enemies are angelic or whether those enemies are human. I think perhaps one of the reasons that God has, God revealed things the way he did in the Old Testament uh, after the death of Christ on the cross, we can go back and we can clearly see a number of, of things that were revealed in the Old Testament that are abundantly clear when we look at them through the lens of what happened at Golgotha. But if you all you had was the Old Testament and you didn't have the Holy Spirit, even John the Baptist is asking questions. Are you really are you really the Messiah? We should be looking for somebody else. And, and he's his first cousin. He's heard all the stories from his mother uh, about the birth of his cousin and the, the miraculous uh, virgin conception and birth with Mary. And even he has doubts. So there is this this uncertainty that even with all of the Old Testament, uh, men didn't know quite what Jesus was going to do, what the Messiah was going to do. And I think God intentionally did it that way also to deceive Satan because Satan thought he had the trump card when he had Jesus crucified and it just came back to bite him and that was his own death sentence that virtually defeated him at the cross even though he continues to fight on until he is uh, finally and totally defeated at the end of the uh, Armageddon campaign, and then again when he's released at the end of the Millennial Kingdom and sent to the Lake of Fire for eternity. So de- God uses deception in warfare. I think that's an important doctrine. God uses deception. We've seen this in our studies of First Kings uh, 26 when God has the angels uh, gather around him, the sons of God, and he says, who's going to go out and deceive Ahab for me? Who's, who are we going to send on that mission? And, and we have a tendency, and I've taught it this way, where these angelic convocations would include both the elect angels, the holy angels, as well as the fallen angels. But it's conceivable that God is sending a, an elect angel, not a demon, to exercise deception. And if you look at the book of Joshua which uh, I have not taught through, and we haven't gone through, but there's a lot of different types of deception in the book of Joshua as they're engaged in military conflict. After the battle at, at Jericho, in the very next battle when they go to Ai and they fight the battle there, what do they do? They hide the majority of the Israelite army back up a canyon somewhere, and they send in 7,000 troops who engage the uh, men at Ai, they come, they come out from behind their fortification and begin to defeat the Israelites, and they fade back in a move that reminds me of the way the Apaches would often fight in the southwest. And they would fade back in, and they faded back into the mountains to a point where the remainder of the Israelite army, the majority of it, would then crush them from the side and ambush them. Just a classic deceptive maneuver. And we see God using deception in his battle in the warfare against Satan and in the warfare against his human enemies. Now, I think this is an important doctrine to study. I've got a friend of mine who is a, a naval uh, commander who is, uh, in, he teaches military ethics at the uh, Naval War College uh, up in Rhode Island. 
And he and I were in a Master's of Theology program at Dallas Seminary, and we were also in the Ph.D. program in Historical Theology together. And Tim has gone on to um, earn, I think, two more doctorates and three more master's degrees or something like that because the military will pay for all of this. So he's gotten additional degrees, and he teaches military ethics. I called him up two or three years ago, and I said, Tim, what, how do you handle... Rahab is a foundation for covert operations and military deception and undercover operations. He said, hmm, I never thought of that. i got to do some thinking about that. That's a, that's a very interesting thing to think about. And unfortunately, nobody has really thought about it or written on this as a, as a doctrine or theology, but I think that that is very much worth exploring because that's the kind of situation that we have here. This isn't the kind of situation that you and I face on a day-to-day basis in just living our lives and we have to decide, well, are we going to lie or deceive somebody or tell the truth? This is within a totally different context, the same type of context that you have with uh, police officers who go undercover on drug stings, with uh, CIA operatives who are going undercover in uh, military operations and are having to tell uh, lies and completely fabricate uh, everything in order to carry out their mission. And if you take what I consider to be sort of a typical surface approach to this passage where you you look and say, well, this lie was wrong, lying, deceiving at any time whatsoever is wrong, which is what most of us have heard over the years, then when you come to a passage like this, if you're in the military and you're thinking about a career in uh, in, in military intelligence or you want to go to work in, with, with police or with uh, FBI, something like that, uh, you have to have a theology that can incorporate deception without going into something like situational ethics. So this is an extremely uh, tantalizing incident here, and I don't think that that Rahab is doing anything that is morally or ethically wrong. She is operating in the context of warfare, and she understands that. So she tells that uh, says that the men uh, came and went, and she doesn't know where they uh, where they went. And she had actually taken them up onto the roof, where she hid them with stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. So this is other materials that she would be using in the running of her uh, her inn, so to speak. Verse uh, seven. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan and to the fords. So there, they believed her, that is the, the guards that the king sent out, and they start chasing them, but as soon as they go out, uh, they begin to realize that, uh, she had not, uh, told the truth. So, she then goes up to the men in verse 8, and says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, which indicates the fear and panic that had already set in among the Canaanites, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. You've already won the uh, main battle, which has to do with mental attitude and the and the commitment of the enemy to go to war. They have given up already. They're already defeated mentally. Because we have heard, verse 10, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because, because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she has a tremendous faith in God, and she is going to throw her lot in with the Israelites because she is convinced and has the faith in what God's plan is. So then she says to them, I, I beg you to swear to me that uh, you will show kindness to me and that you will promise that you will spare my family and that none of my family will uh, have their lives taken in the, in the coming battle. So the men answered, and they swore to her that that's exactly what they would do, and they um, 
Uh, then she let them out by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Now, I'm going to show you a video at the end of class. It'll take about um, about 15 minutes that deals with the archaeology of, of Jericho. And I ran across this video today. I had somewhat prepared to go through the material myself, but this was discovered by uh, the, these. This work was all done by uh, Dr. Bryant Wood with the uh, Biblical Research Associates, and I found this great video where he gives all the information. There's nothing like hearing it from an expert who actually discovered and uncovered the information rather than hearing it secondhand through me. And so we'll look at that. But one of the things he points out. When it comes to the end of the section we'll listen to this evening, he points out that there was, when they discovered the walls, the archaeologists have identified the walls of Jericho, that there is one section on the north end where the walls were not destroyed, and that this is the area where uh, Rahab's house would be, but that this phrase, on the city wall, which is a very difficult phrase to understand in the, in the Hebrew, uh, actually would mean against the wall, for that's how the city was constructed. As they've gone in and they've, they've uh, uncovered this, this house wasn't on top of the wall. It was up against uh, the, the side of the wall. So she allows them to get out and to es- escape and to hide until the pursue- pursuers are out of the way. So the men then... Uh, promised that if she would put out a scarlet rope to indicate her presence and where she was located, then that she would not be be harmed. That's the introduction to Jericho. Now what happens in chapter 3 is the Israelites cross the Jordan. Then they are, uh, in chapter 5, they go to Gilgal where they are circumcised, which means that this this, uh, generation is reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant, because circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. They're not going back to the Mosaic covenant. This is Abrahamic covenant. This is a recognition that this land was given to them by God. The right to the land was given to them uh, in the covenant with, with Abraham. But before they can go into the land, they have to be as it were, positionally sanctified in order to go into the land. So this would be comparable, once again, to to what we think of as salvation, as phase one. This is a positional event. It's not something they would do again and again and again, but there will be times that where they are disobedient and the nation will have to be cleansed again, for example, after the disobedience that occurs uh, after Jericho. So then as we stopped last time, I came to verse 12 where the commander of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua. And this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told, verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day, on that day after they had eaten the produce of the land. Once they got into the land and began to eat from the fruit of the land, at that instant, God ceased the manna supply because now they had the supply from the land. And this is a time we know from uh, within this context that is just after the harvest. So there is plenty of food uh, for them to, uh, plenty of food for them to eat. They have a harvest at the end of the uh, winter production, because if you remember, just before they crossed over the Jordan, they celebrated Passover. So they come into the land and they are now going to be fed by the fruit of the land. Verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite with him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? adversaries?" And he said, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come, and Joshua uh, fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, so we know this isn't a creature, this isn't an angel, this is uh, God himself, this is actually the second person of the Trinity. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your feet, off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy, indicating again this is deity uh, standing before him. 
Now, chapter 6 then begins telling us about Jericho. It was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. They had anticipated this, and this is a uh, diagram here of the of the tell and what's been uh, discovered through the archaeological digs. There were actually two um, two walls. There's an the the purple line here represents uh, the wall that was in place at the time that uh, that this conquest took place. The lower wall here was down the hill. It was an older wall, and it was uh, it may not have been. Uh, in, in, in a complete condition at the time. And then you also had a number of people and dwellings that were built outside of the upper wall in the purple shaded area, uh, in between. We'll look, see a couple of pictures, uh, later on indicating what that, uh, what that looked like. And so this area, as I said, covered about, uh, six, uh, six acres or so on top. And when you add the other area, it would expand to approximately nine areas. What made this such a uh, a formidable site and a site to settle, because as you saw from the pictures earlier, it's pretty dry. I don't know if it was as dry then as it is now, but it was still somewhat dry. But they had a spring that came that provided uh, water for them, and the spring came up inside, and here's the modern uh, reservoir of the spring, and this spring is what still supplies water for the modern city of Jericho. And so they had water inside the walls, and because it was harvest, they had uh, just brought in the grain, and all of this food is stored inside the walls. In fact, the, the uh, archaeologists have discovered uh, huge pots, um, numerous pots of grain, uh, the grain that was stored during this time when the city uh, when the city was destroyed. Now the uh, text on the side I'll read to you. This is a picture of what is called uh, the fourth city. There are various different levels, and so this is the fourth city. And all all scholars agree that it was violently destroyed. But there's been a lot of debate about this. There was a man in the, back in the 30s named John Garstang, a British archaeologist, who did a tremendous amount of research, and he dated uh, the remains of City 4 within the, um, in the, around 1400 uh, to 1500 B.C., and identified the, the, the remains that he found as the remains of the wall that fell down uh, at, at the time of Joshua. Then in the 1960s or so, um, there was uh, some co- uh, conflict on this, and they also found signs of fire. Uh, a lot of places, areas had been burned uh, tremendously as a result of the collapse of the, uh, the collapse of the walls. And then in the 50s and 60s, along came Kathleen Kenyon, uh, who re-examined Garstang's evidence, dug in another area, the area marked area, area B here. A was Garstang's dig. She's over here in B. And she, uh, her conclusions were that this, this destruction was, uh, about 1550 BC. So this would be 150 years before we would date the conquest. And so according to her evaluation of the data, this was too early for the Israelites and nothing else is happening. So her conclusion was that there's no evidence uh, anywhere of, of the walls falling down, of the story of Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. None of that was there. And that is what you'll say. I remember in 1979, in the fall of 79, taking a biblical archaeology class. Randy Price sat next to me. We're studying under Dr. Barker at Dallas Seminary. We studied the archaeology of Jericho, and it was, well, we're, we're uncertain. There's no evidence based on Kathleen Kenyon's findings. There's no evidence that the walls fell down uh, because of the dating. We don't know what the, pro- what, uh, the issues are. She had uh, completely challenged Garstang's uh, evidence, and that was the accepted scholarly opinion back in the 70s. Uh, this is a picture of the, of the tell itself from the, from the air. So you can see a little bit, the, uh, get a little perspective on the general size of the city. It's not real, 
uh, not very large, and then this is an artist's depiction of what it would have looked like. The houses there are probably a little too far apart. They were much, much closer together. But you do get some idea of how some of these houses along here were right up against uh, against the wall. And then out here, of course, you have the Israelites uh, marching around. Now, when God gave the instructions to, to uh, Joshua, uh, they were completely contrary to any kind of military advice and strategy that anyone would give in all of history. God told him that instead of organizing his troops in terms of uh, strength, in terms of their weapons, in terms of the most valiant warriors out front, that instead they were to march around the city, all the men of war, some uh, some suggest that this was just a representative number. Others say that it would be all the men of war. If it was all the men of war, it was probably 500,000. It would take some time for them to walk around the city, even though it's not very large. If it's just a small group that's marching, a representative group, then they could walk around the city in about 30, uh, 30 or 40 minutes. So the instructions from God were that they would march around the city, uh, for once a day for six days, and during that time they would uh, not uh, not make any noise. They would be led by seven priests who would carry seven uh, shofars, seven ram's horns before the ark, and then on the seventh day they would march around the city seven times, and then and only then would they make a noise, and the priests would blow their uh, shofars, and then at that point, the people would uh, shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city would fall down flat. And then the people shall notice, go up every man straight before him. Now, what's interesting is that, and we'll see this in the video in a minute, is that this is a diagram of the two walls. You had the lower wall, which was the older wall, and then you had the upper wall uh, around the, the upper part of the city. If those walls fell down, they would they would collapse and the bricks would roll down and basically turn the hillside into a ramp that would allow the Israelites to make it up up the hill. And uh, we'll see in the video how that's described uh, described in a minute. And that's exactly what uh, Kathleen Kenyon herself, even though she denied that this was could be dated in uh, the period of 1400, her her uh, charts of the of the rubble from the wall. She she agreed that the walls had fallen down, and that they had fallen down a certain way. And so we have her charts, which which confirm uh, this uh, this kind of thing. It's just that she was off on the dates for various reasons, as uh, as Doctor Wood will explain in just a minute. So Joshua's <coughs> condition here is that he has to believe God. This is what the writer of Hebrews is focusing on, that he believed God and trusted God. So he goes back to his generals and gives them the instructions. Now, it's interesting, the generals don't balk at all. These are the uh, men that were born and raised during the uh, time in the wilderness. They, this generation has a trust in God. They're not like their parents who came out from slavery, and so they don't question the orders. They just trust in what the, what the Lord has instructed them. They're the ones who've been living daily on manna day in and day out for the last 40 years. And so they are going to follow God's instructions to the letter. And so they begin to carry out that instruction. And each day they uh, march around the city. And then the last day comes and we read down in verse uh, 15 and 16 that they marched around the city seven, uh, seven times. And then on the seventh time, verse 16, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And at that instant, the city, uh, the city, the walls collapse. So the city, he says, now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. And all who are in it, only Rahab, the harlot, shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. You have to pay attention to the orders here. Abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed or come under discipline and bring the whole camp, the whole nation, under uh, discipline. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are set apart to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. But everything else it was to be 
was to be destroyed. Verse 21, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Why are they having to kill all the animals? Because these are the domestic animals God is showing you that they weren't going to be living off of the uh, proceeds of the pagan culture. And that was tr- that was the order for J- Jericho. It differs in different places. And so the people did exactly what uh, uh, what God said to do. And we read then in uh, verse 23, the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab. Afterwards, they brought in Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city. So after the walls go down, they go in, they burn the city, they take out all the silver and gold and bronze and iron, and that goes into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And the promise to Rahab was fulfilled. Now, this is one of the most interesting episodes, I think, in all of Scripture because it teaches about how God is faithful, and we have good archaeological evidence which substantiates this. And if I can get over to, there we go. I want to play about 15 minutes, so our timing's good, 14, 15 minutes of this video. We're going to need to turn the lights out because uh, it doesn't have as uh, the light illumination of the projectors isn't uh, all that it should be, but this is Dr. Bryant Wood. These men with the Biblical Research Association are very conservative, Bible-believing creationists, and they take the dates, the numbers, all the data in Scripture uh, to be absolutely accurate and true. And up until his work in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, everybody in Christendom believed that there was no evidence at Jericho, and he um, he just did a fabulous job of uh, uh, demonstrating the truth of Scripture. It's still only about nine acres, and as we'll see later, there were people actually living uh, on the embankment. Here's a cross-section through that fortification system, uh, the purple blue here, showing the embankment. Today it's preserved only up to about this height. The rest of it all eroded away. Then there's our brick wall at the top of that embankment, about six feet wide. And we know there was a wall there from an earlier phase of this fortification. And uh, Kenyon uncovered that earlier phase, and it had a wall up there about six feet wide. And uh, down here, we actually have found portions of this uh, lower wall at several places around the tell, and we know it was about six feet wide. That means the height of the wall would have been around 20 feet, approximately three times as high as it was wide. And then uh, finally, we have this uh, stone retaining wall here. goes right down to bedrock, and that held this embankment in place. And here is ground level, and this is where uh, the Israelites were walking around the city uh, each day for seven days. And uh, you can imagine the thoughts going through their heads as they were looking up at this massive fortification system and thinking, wow, how can we ever take this city? But yet they followed the Lord's direction, and they marched around it one time Uh, each day for six days, and then on the seventh day they marched around seven times, and then those walls came down. Here's the description of the walls falling down, as we have it in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. And it tells us the people shouted, the priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. That's what all of our translations say. The wall fell flat. But when you look at the Hebrew text, there's a Hebrew word used there that does not mean flat, but rather means the wall fell beneath itself. Well, you saw that cross-section diagram. When those walls fell, what would happen? The mud bricks would just tumble down that embankment and be deposited at the base of that retaining wall. And so literally, the walls fell beneath themselves. Now it's interesting, 
that uh, critical scholars will tell us that uh, this story was written hundreds of years later. In fact, most biblical scholars say the Old Testament was written during the exile period. Well, when we look at something like this, we must wonder, well, how would they know in the exile period that the walls fell beneath themselves? Obviously, they would not know, and obviously it wasn't written then. It was written by someone who observed the walls falling down. It's an eyewitness account, and that is what our Scripture is. It's something that was written at the time. It's not something written down hundreds or thousands of years later. Then we read the people. Uh, these are the Israelite soldiers around the city uh, on that seventh trip around, that seventh day. They went up into the city. Well, here again, how would a later writer know they went up? Why didn't they just run straight in? Well, again, the person who wrote this down was observing what happened, and they had to go up over that earthen embankment to get up to the city. Every man uh, went up straight ahead, and they took the city. Just another uh, artist's uh, reconstruction of those events. Down at the southern uh, end of the site of Jericho, there's been a recent expedition in the late 1990s undertaken by a team from the University of Rome, and they cleared quite a long section of the retaining wall. Kenyon had previously dug a trench up to that wall, but she did not uh, go beyond the wall to the area outside of that retaining wall, and so the Italians as part of their work, uh, cleared a section of the wall. And as you can see, it's very high. I am standing at about the level of ground level uh, at the time of uh, Joshua. And so you can see just this uh, stone facing, this retaining wall, is a, a huge barrier for the Israelites to get into the city. It's uh, how high? 18 or 20 feet. And then on top of that, of course, the uh, mud brick wall. <clears throat> this is uh, a view kind of looking down on that, and you can get such a view because there is now a cable car that goes from the parking lot at the southern end of the Tal of Jericho up to the Mount of Temptation where there's a uh, monastery up there uh, kind of clinging to the cliff. So this cable car will take you up if you want to visit that monastery, but it passes right over that Italian excavation area. And you can see the, uh, the length of their dig there where they've exposed this uh, retaining wall for that distance there. And notice buildings here outside of the wall. <coughs> Excuse me. And when they uh, constructed this wall, they cut through the buildings that were there right along this line. You can clearly see the cut when they dug a trench down to bedrock and then they built their stone retaining wall from bedrock up to support that earthen embankment. Well, this is uh, important archaeology here because we know the sequence. First, we have these buildings and then uh, after that, after they went out of use, we have the construction of this uh, massive wall. The pottery in the buildings here dates to the very end of the Middle Bronze Period or very early in the Late Bronze Period. In other words, right around 1500 B.C. So again, this is disproving Kenyon's date of some 15, 50 years earlier for the destruction of the city. They were just building their final fortification system uh, around 1500, which means the destruction happened sometime after that. And it, it, from the pottery, it would be about 100 years later than the uh, construction of the fortification system. So that uh, is very important evidence that the Italians have provided for us. Here's a view at the end of Kenyon's West Trench uh, that she uh, dug through the fortification system. And uh, before she cut through this uh, retaining wall, uh, she cleared it off and took this nice picture. And then she completed the trench and cut right through that retaining wall. But we can see, again, the great height of that wall. The meter stick there is, what, one, two, three, 
four meters high, and so uh, you can kind of calculate uh, the, the overall height. Maybe that's two meters. I, it's hard to tell from the picture. Uh, anyway, the important thing I wanted to show you uh, here are the remnants of the mud bricks up here. It's the first course of the mud brick wall that once stood there, and that's the wall that fell. When the Italians first exposed that retaining wall, there were uh, chunks of mud brick on top of their wall as well. And here I, I'm uh, putting my hand right on those mud bricks. But uh, this was taken, I think, 1997. Uh, since then, the winter rains have washed these bricks away, and they're not there today, unfortunately. But uh, they were there uh, when they first opened up that area. Uh, here's a... Uh, cross-section through Kenyon's West Trench, what we call a bulk drawing. And it gives us the details, again, of that fortification system with the yellow showing our earthen embankment. Here's our retaining wall. Here's ground level. And notice what Kenyon discovered when she dug beyond that retaining wall a great pile of what she calls fallen red bricks. Isn't that interesting? A pile of fallen red bricks. And what does she say about it? In her excavation report, she tells us the first tip line, that's this sloping surface here, uh, was fallen red bricks piling nearly to the top of the revetment. That's what she calls this retaining wall. And you can see the bricks go nearly to the top of that retaining wall. These probably came from the wall on the summit. She's talking about the mud brick wall up there, uh, summit of the bank, or the brickwork above the revetment. Well, isn't this interesting? She is saying that that pile of bricks came from the city walls. That's where the bricks were deposited when the walls fell down. Now, for Kenyon, it had nothing to do with the biblical account because of her uh, incorrect dating. For her, this happened 150 years before Joshua. But once we get the dating straightened out and we know that the city was destroyed in about 1400, then we realize this is evidence for the fallen walls of Jericho. And this isn't the only example. Every place around that tell where archaeologists have dug, they have found a similar pile of bricks. Let me just go back and make one more point before we leave that section view there. Uh, well, okay, the walls fell down. How were the Israelites going to get a, up over this uh, retaining wall, which was uh, very high? Well, notice how those bricks fell uh, in, in such a way as to form a ramp. And so when the walls fell, the Israelites could just scramble over that pile of collapsed mud brick and go up into the city just as the Bible tells us. I'm here at the base of the retaining wall, and in the bulk of the Italian dig, you can clearly see the same pile of bricks piling up against the retaining wall as Kenyon found just a short distance away in her west trench. Everything at the base of that retaining wall is all collapsed mud brick. I've got my left foot there on some of that mud brick. Uh, Chip is going to go to Israel in August, and he's going to jump down in that trench, and he's going to bring us back one of those bricks. Right, Chip? <laughs> you bet. Okay, the evidence is still there today. And this just shows some of the places around the city where they have excavated up against that retaining wall and found similar evidence. Well, if the walls fell down, what about Rahab's house? Uh, we mentioned the uh, spies going into her house, and when uh, she uh, hid them and the king's men left, then we're told that she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. Now, other translations uh, might have something slightly different. Maybe her house was in the wall or a corner of the wall or something like that. Uh, in fact, the translators really don't know how to deal with the Hebrew that we have here. But now that we have the results of the excavations, we can uh, more precisely translate the Hebrew here. The Hebrew actually uh, says, 
that her house was built against the vertical surface of the city wall. The Kir HaHoma, Homa is the word for the big city wall. Kir is a word that uh, usually means small wall, but in this case, uh, it means the vertical surface of a wall, and that's a meaning that we encounter sometimes in the Old Testament. And so uh, her house was Bakir, against the vertical surface of the Homa, the city wall. Uh, and so uh, the city wall was actually kind of the back wall to her house, and she had an opening there to let in some light and fresh air. And so uh, by letting the spies out that window of her house, they were able to go down over the city wall. And then she said, flee to the mountains. And that was uh, quite close by. Uh, and then later, uh, the Israelite spies went back to her house and rescued Rahab and her family. You remember, they had made that covenant. If she would hide them and uh, hide them from the king's men and save their lives, they would save her life when they attacked the city. And they said, put a red rope out this window of your house so that we will know which house is yours. Well, if the city wall fell, how did her house survive? Well, archaeology gives us the answer. Up at the northern end of the site, all of the expeditions uh, excavated uh, trenches through that fortification, fortification system, and they found that the wall was still standing at the northern end of the site. The Germans uh, here found it still standing to a height of about nine feet. Can you imagine, after 3,400 years, still standing to a height of nine feet. Garstang found a similar uh, situation, maybe not quite as high as the Germans, but uh, still quite high. And Kenyon found uh, just a bit of it here, but enough to show that uh, it was still kind of uh, still remaining there to some extent. The, in, the, the wall did not fall. That is what we're uh, determining from these remnants that are remaining there. Here's Garstang's dig, and we see again our retaining wall here. And then here's uh, what's left of that uh, brick wall. It's six feet wide, and my goodness, it looks like it's even higher than six feet. But it, it shows that in the northern part of the tell, the wall did not fall for a uh, short distance. Here's a plan looking down uh, on the findings from the German dig with our retaining wall running here and our mud brick wall running along here. And uh, we see that houses are built on the slope right up against the uh, lower mud brick wall. So this must be the area where Rahab's house was located. I don't know which one is hers. We uh, don't know her address, and so we weren't able to figure out which house she lived in. But it must have been one of these houses on the north side of the town. And, of course, the north side is the closest side to those mountains, and uh, the spies could easily escape from there uh, to the mountains. So that explains how Rahab's house uh, was, uh, was able to survive because God preserved it, and he preserved the wall there on the northern side for that short distance. Here again we can see our retaining wall, and then here's the mud brick wall. This is from the German dig. And notice all of the houses there on the embankment. This must have been the poor part of town. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, sort of the overflow from the upper city. And this is apparently where Rahab lived. Here's an artist's a reconstruction of that. The houses were much more tightly packed than what he shows here. But it gives you an idea of uh, the situation there and uh, where Rahab's house was located. And her house would have looked something like this with the flax drying on the roof, the hole or the opening there where the spies escaped. Today, you can still walk around the site of Jericho, and every little ways you can see the top of that stone retaining wall kind of popping up through the earth. And uh, if you care to walk around, uh, it takes about a half an hour to go around the site of ancient Jericho. Well, now we're going to go over to the uh, southeast slope where they found the evidence for the burned city. The uh, area here to the south. Okay, well, I thought you all would enjoy hearing him go over that material. That is still today not fully accepted by a lot of 
liberals because their presupposition is that God really didn't do anything supernatural. You can't, uh, you, you can't prove that. There were no miracles. And of course, then you have the minimalists who try to say that, uh, uh, there's no evidence of, of, uh, Jews at all in the land until much, much later. They're, they just, they want to say that the house of David was mythical and all of these other things. So, uh, th- these, these guys have done a tremendous, uh, service, I think, in uh, demonstrating how archaeology, done correctly, uh, really does show, demonstrate, substantiate the claims that we have in Scripture. Now, back to the beginning, we saw that uh, by faith, Joshua, and by faith, Rahab. So their faith was in the promise of God to give the land to Israel, and so they were willing to trust God no matter what the difficulties in life might be. And so the challenge to to the readers of Hebrews, the challenge to us is to do the same thing, that whatever uh, difficulties we may have, no matter how insurmountable they might appear, that we are to trust in God who is more powerful than any difficulty that we perceive in life. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things. Thank you for the work of the uh, Biblical Research Associates for uh, Dr. Woods and his team and all that they have done working in uh, Israel, a number of sites recovering the location of uh, Bethel, uh, AI also recovering the, uh, reevaluating all the evidence of Jericho and just what a tremendous amount of work that they've done. Father, we thank you for the uh, confirmation this is uh, that we have of the truth of your word and may this strengthen our faith to trust you Uh, no matter what the circumstances may be and no matter what our own experience may tell us. We need to put our hope and trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.